Well, good morning and uh, welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, it is a beautiful day. I know some of you have been out running this morning early. Um, and it's a great day to be a part of Kansas City. I'm Tom Nelson and I have the great joy of serving on our teaching team uh, at Christ Community. And uh, it is, as Matt said, a delightful day outside and an awesome day inside. So it's really good to be with you. I see uh, some wonderful, familiar faces, but also some new faces. So I want to give you a special warm greeting if you're newer to Christ Community. Maybe you're visiting today, uh, and you're part of a much larger family. Um, and uh, I want to give you a greeting on behalf of that as well. A few years ago, um, I was introduced to a very uh, amazing man named Gary Haugen. Now, Gary Haugen uh, graduated from some of the finest universities in our land. Uh, Gary um, was in Washington, D.C., one of the most powerful cities in America, serving in the Justice Department. His life was radically changed in 1994 when he was asked by the United Nations to do field investigations in Rwanda. Can you imagine in 100 days, historians tell us that over 800,000 people were killed in 100 days in Rwanda genocide. And Gary was the one who went to give a report back to the United Nations. And if you know anything about Gary, you know that this experience absolutely radicalized his life and revolutionized it. Gary's heart was undone as he encountered the unimaginable evil And with this, he founded an organization designed to build the walls of the world around the most vulnerable and to protect those who were abused by others called the International Justice Mission. A few years ago, Gary Haugen came to Christ's community. And he gave us a message that was very compelling. He stood before our congregation and he challenged us with this question. The question was, will we live safe or will we live brave? Most of us have watched with extraordinary horror the Boston terrorism attack. One thing that stuck out to me as we looked at different people who refused to live safe and live brave. Here's a picture, an amazing picture of this gentleman by the name of Carlos Arandando, who left the safety after the bomb hit and rescued others. And when I watched and heard his story, it's an amazing story because one of his sons committed suicide, the other was in Iraq, and he was ready to end his life as if life his life didn't matter. And it's often said, at least I've read this on several occasions, there are three types of people in the world. Those who make things happen, those who have things happen to them, and those who look at the world and say, what on earth happened? But I want to suggest to you there really are two types of people in the world. There are people who live safe and people who live brave. People who look at the rubble of brokenness in the world and people who, will, who build walls of restoration from the rubble. 
And the question for us this morning as a congregation, as a campus, is what kind of people will we be? Will we be rubble gazers or wall builders? Will we live brave or will we live safe? Now, the brokenness of our world is all around us. You don't have to have a pastor tell you that, right? You experience that every day. Whether it's a terrorist attack on our home front, whether it's a crumbling, crime-infested neighborhood of Kansas City, whether it is young girls enslaved in a brothel in Thailand to fuel the sex trade, how do we respond to the brokenness of our world, friends? Do we respond with a kind of numbing indifference, or will it compel us to compassionate engagement in our world? And one of the most damnable lies of the evil one is this lie. And we hear it often in our heads and our hearts. And that is, we really can't make a difference in the world. But I want to suggest to you that yes, we can. And we must. We must choose to live brave and not safe. This is the story of the book of Nehemiah that comes from us across the sands of time from the 6th century B.C., And it calls us to live brave. To not be rubble gazers, but to be wall builders in our world. And Nehemiah's story is the the genre of memoir and literary excellence. And Nehemiah is one who refuses to live safe. He lives brave. So I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bible this morning, if you've opened it up, to Nehemiah chapter 3. Last week, Pastor Bill explored with us the introduction to the story that sets the whole trajectory of this marvelous book of 13 chapters. And if you've read the Bible much or you haven't, Nehemiah is a fun read. It's a challenging read. It has all the ups and downs and heroes and challenges of a great story. But it is a memoir in its literary genre. It is not just narrative. It is a transparent, first-hand look of a transforming moment in the lives of God's covenant people. So it has a beautiful literary structure to it. Now when we enter back into the story, we need to understand that Nehemiah tells us that he was cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. And we know that Nehemiah was not only the cupbearer to the king, he was a servant of the king of kings. And this is a part of the narrative. Now a cupbearer to the king, if you remember last week, is not just someone who's a good waiter or hands the the, uh, king wine, as much as important that was. Um... It's like in ancient Persia, in the 6th century B.C., it would be like this. It would be like being President Obama's chief of staff and the head of Secret Service all into one. So this position was incredibly important and powerful. In other words, Nehemiah tells us, and the story builds, that God had placed him in an amazing place. He was a heartbeat away from the king. And we entered the story last week and realized that Nehemiah's heart is undone by the brokenness of the walls of Jerusalem. And he risks his head. He risks his life and goes to the king. And rather than losing his head, King Artaxerxes nods his head. It's the most amazing story. And Nehemiah is given not only an extended leave of absence from his position, which is astounding, but he's also sent back to Jerusalem with a royal blank check. Or an unlimited royal visa card. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. 
Last week he entered Jerusalem, and it's just a pile of rubble. He must have felt overwhelmed, but rather, as we heard the text this morning, he rallies a people who have been looking at rubble for over a hundred years. Get that. Up to their neck in rubble, brokenness and ruin around them, and he rallies them and says, let's do it. Let's build a wall. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. He says to them in chapter 2, verse 18, this is a defining moment in the whole book. He says, let us arise and build. Now that's what he's saying. We're not going to be rubble gazers anymore, y'all. We're going to build this thing. And the question for the reader now is this as we enter into 3 and 4. What will wall building mean for us? What will obedience to God in our lives entail? And what we learn in this text is a really important truth that has application to all of our life and to our campus. And that is that wall building requires team effort. To build walls of restoration, we must be team. We must have a team approach. And there are three truths that we want to unpack for you this morning. This is where the text takes us. And if you're taking notes, this is the structure or the roadmap of this morning from the text. What Nehemiah is going to tell us through the story of chapter 3 and 4 are three truths. First of all, he's going to say that hard work awaits us. To build walls requires back-breaking work. But also he will tell us not only hard work awaits us, big challenges confront us. And then he ends the chapter reminding us, chapter 4, that supernatural resources await us. So this is the structure that sets the template of the whole 13 chapters, the brilliance of this Hebrew literature. We have a glimpse and a picture of the whole all in one. So what we gather first is that hard work awaits us. And here's what they faced. Here's a map of 6th century B.C. Jerusalem. It was about 2.2 miles around this wall, some 200 acres Remember, the wall is broken by fire. It's like rubble. So over 100, like 120 years of rubble have been building. In other words, it's not easy or it's not hard to see all the work that needs to be done. The challenge is to get it done. Wall work is hard work, and it can never be done alone. Now, it's easy for us in chapter 3, if you have your Bible open, to look at all the names. You know, this is like a nightmare for someone to ask you to read out loud all the names. I can't even read all the names. These Hebrew names are hard to pronounce. It's a name, 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 name. But there's a reason why chapter 3 is filled with names. It's because Nehemiah is reminding us of a very important truth that everyone is needed on the wall. It is a massive undertaking. So I don't want you just to check out of chapter 3. Now, we're not going to go through it in detail. But the tendency is to look at Nehemiah 3 and go, oh, just name after name after name. I have no, it doesn't matter to me. Let's jump to chapter 4. That's the good part. But I would encourage you this week or later on today to read chapter 3. It is filled with great truths. But let me highlight just a couple observations that I hope will whet your appetite to read more. Notice, first of all, the different ages, men and women, are all represented on picking up bricks and building the wall. All vocations are represented. And what you will notice that surprises you is that there are no vocations listed of stonemasons and carpenters. Isn't that interesting? 
I mean, it's not to say that they, they weren't involved in the wall. The point is, is that Nehemiah wants to say that everyone was required on the wall, even whatever vocation you are. You have priests, you have goldsmiths, you have people, all kinds of people all gathering together to build a wall. Now, at Christ's community, over our years of history, we have built a lot of habitat houses. And if you've been a part of our habitat bills, they're pretty amazing as we restore communities in Kansas City. And one of the things I love about habitat bills is that, you know, I can't do anything. I mean, I'm like, you know, they have me carrying water, right? I mean, don't let Tom get a hammer. You know, he'll destroy it. But I love the picture of young children, families across their campuses gathering together. Some people can, you know, not only design the thing, they can build it, but everyone is working together. And this is the picture that Nehemiah gives us in chapter 3. Notice also, and this is what the literary genre tells us, you'll notice the the refrain in Nehemiah 3, and it's very vivid in the Hebrew language. You'll notice the repetition of the words next to him, next to them, next to them, by them. Did you see that? It's just over and over again. It's like redundant, but it's not. It's reminding that teamwork requires close proximity. They are hand-to-hand against the wall. They are all linking arms. That's the picture. Now, how many of you have heard recently in the news that the Grand Red River of the north, if you're a northerner, you know about this, where the river does not flow flow south, it flows flows north, right, into Canada. If you're a northerner, you know this. It's a good question on a trivia quiz because the Mississippi and Missouri and all that travel south, right? But the Red River travels north into Canada. And the Red River is known for flooding across this ancient lake in um, the eastern part of North Dakota and western Minnesota. It's called the Great Red River. Along the Great Red River, there are two larger cities, at least for North Dakota, Fargo and Grand Forks. They're both college towns, and they're really important to the whole economy. And if you watch the news lately, you know that this year, the focus and Fargo, let alone Grand Forks North, is... They're expecting the largest flood ever. And they have been sandbagging day and night. Everybody has been out sandbagging. Well, this is not foreign to me because three of my undergraduate years, yes, I survived, I spent in Grand Forks, North Dakota in my business background degree. And three springs, we had floods, but two of them, they canceled classes, thousands of students at the university to save Grand Forks, literally building a dike around the whole city. And we spent three days from early morning to late at night all sandbagging together. Have you ever lifted a sandbag? (laughs) One? I mean, they're heavy, unless you're some bodybuilder dude, right? They're amazing, and we did it from morning till night for three days. You talk about tired. But we are all together locking arms to save a city. There were people, there was the mayor, there was, I mean, all, everybody, the who's who and the who's that, were all right there. This is the picture we are given. And Nehemiah tells us, <laughs> the stakes are high. Everybody's on the wall. Everybody's participating. Notice the emphasis on hard work. In chapter 4, you can almost feel the sweat of the brow, the aching backs, right? You can feel it. And twice, Nehemiah reminds us that this is hard work. Notice in 4.6, the people had a mind, literally the Hebrew text says, had a heart to work. They had the guts to do it. And then in 4.21, 
It says from the dawn, the beginning, the break of dawn, to when the stars came out, they worked. That is long hours. So the emphasis of chapter 4 is an emphasis of the hard work they face. See, whether it's restoring a community, a neighborhood, whether it's dealing with the brokenness of a life, a family, the brokenness of our life or a workplace, whatever it is, brokenness demands hard work. Restoration is not easy. That's why so many people settle for a comfortable life of gazing at the rubble rather than getting your hands dirty and restoring it. The first truth this text tells us is that hard work is part of the deal. It awaits us. But notice now in chapter 4, the second truth emerges for those who want to be wall builders. Those of us who will live brave rather than safe. And that is inevitably big challenges confront us. Now I want us to follow along closely in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. I want to read that and then make some comments on it. So again, if you have your Bible open electronically or uh, paper-wise, and I think we also have wonderful slides to follow. This is God's word, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 9. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Let me just stop there for just a moment. The Hebrew text, which the English comes from, paints this picture of two extraordinarily intense words for hatred. The picture is, is not just, oh, I'm kind of ticked off today. (laughs) It's a picture of physiological change when we are murderously angry. It's a picture of completely losing it with anger. This is not just the light anger. This is a murderous anger that leads us to destructive behavior. And the text throughout the Old Testament is one whose physiological appearance changes. They are so ticked off. Not just a red face. The text says they are shaking. So I don't want us to go further on this narrative without understanding the intensity of this anger. Let's continue. And he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and at the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish in a day? You always hear that sarcastic jeering. And then this one tops the cake here. Will they revive? Literally it means, will they bring the stones to life? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish? And the burned ones out of that? You just hear him. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He said, Yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on the wall, but he'll break it down, their stupid stone wall. That's the idea. Now notice what Nehemiah says. You can hear him. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered. In a land where they are captives, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. No retaliation is prayer. One of my favorite verses now is 6 in Nehemiah. (laughs) So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a heart to work. 
But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nobody said it was going to be easy, right? How many times have we said that? And what I want us to grasp in this text is there's two forms of opposition that discourage them. There's external opposition from the stinging critic. Last week we were introduced to the three I call the three stooges. What characters they are. What gnarly characters they are. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And for whatever reason, here, Geshem is silent. He'll come back later in the story. But Nehemiah accentuates, again, the anger of these guys. And he highlights the stinging barb. I bet you Nehemiah never forgot this. You've read someone give you a stinging barb, and you remember it verbatim for the rest of your life. Right? Sticks and stones break our bones, but words destroy us. And they never leave us. And Nehemiah remembers the exact words that this goofy Tobiah said. That, hey, even if a fox gets on your wall, how much does a fox weigh? You know, I haven't you know, weighed one recently, but they're really small. They're lightweights. And this guy says, yeah, if a fox gets on the wall, the wall will come dumbling. Ah, ha, 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 ha. That's the picture. You know, when someone says something like that to you or a mean-spirited word, you remember exactly the conversation. You know, we forget sermons. (laughs) I know you don't. But we remember stinging barbs, don't we? Because they destroy us, they hurt us, they discourage us, they take the wind out of us. They make us second-guess ourselves, and this is what these guys are doing. Have you ever had a sand ballot and Tobiah in your life? Oh, they might not have had that name. I know there's kind of strange names. But I bet you someone comes to mind. Think with me for a moment. Don't say the name out loud. I wouldn't want it to be someone next to you. But there are people in our lives that question our motives about everything. They question our work. Sometimes they're threatened by you. You know, your looks, your athletic ability, your intellectual acumen. Sometimes they're threatened by your growing market share in your business or getting the big sale. Or your grades or popularity at school, right, kids and students? Maybe there's a sand ballad in Tobiah that looks like your mother-in-law. <laughs> or a relative or a spouse. Maybe they show up in your cubicle every day, or at least right next to it at work. Right? I see some nods. Because what these people are is they're bullies. They're bullies, and they're darn good at it. They've had a lot of practice, and they practice on you. See, bullies we encounter when we're kids. I had bullies in my life. I'll never forget a couple of them on the playground. The disillusioned thing in my life is that bullies came with me. Oh, well, they changed names and faces. They got a little older, but they're bullies nonetheless. Bullies appeared in college, in work. Bullies appear in church, and sometimes pastors are bullies too. And bullies are hell-bent on discouraging you and taking the wind out of your sails. These guys are bullies. 
Sanballat and Tobiah. Why are they bullies? Well, apart from just being gnarly people, there's something going on under the text that we need to understand. And that is, these guys are like slum landlords, like loan sharks, like sex traffickers. They get rich and powerful over the brokenness of others in injustice. And the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, the restoring of a people, God's work threatened them. It challenged their livelihood and their power. And once that idol is attacked or challenged, these guys come unglued. We need to understand that when we seek to restore a city, when we seek to be God's people, again, with love and compassion, but when we seek to restore a people... When we seek to address the grave injustice of our world, the broken rubble of our world, we are going to face external opposition from people who do not benefit by people being restored. They're all about the status quo because it makes them powerful and wealthy, whether it's politics, business, education, you name it. There will be people in your life who will make your life miserable because you just simply want to obey God and do his work. Not because you're being a jerk. That's another reason, right? Sometimes people would not like you because we're jerks. And that's not the idea here. Nehemiah wasn't a jerk. But people sometimes are going to oppose you for what you believe and what you're about. One of my favorite Bibles to read, at least the footnotes, is a Bible from the Renovari group. Friend Dallas Willard and several others who reflect on this text. And listen to what they say. In the job description of every Christian, the cross is not a footnote. The cross is a major heading that clearly marks out the road to God. We talk a lot about crosses to bear, don't we? All of us have if we're a follower of Jesus. That comes with it. Not only is there external opposition that is a cross to bear, there is internal challenges as well internal discouragement. And this is where Nehemiah camps on. Sometimes we focus on Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, but really the emphasis, the greatest threat is internal. Look at verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And don't miss this. When you build a wall, of restoration, you will hit the wall of discouragement. Building walls inevitably means we hit the wall. And this is what verse 10 tells us. What is the source of deep discouragement for these people? It is twofold. One is fear. And if you had a sand ballot in Tobiah and Geshem wanting to destroy your life, you'd be freaking out with fear too, right? I would be. But it's not just external fear, it's internal fatigue. The text tells us that they are overwhelmed by the amount of rubble and the hard work. See, it's really easy to have courage to get off the dime, to get a project started, right? But when the newness of the project wears off, they are simply overwhelmed by how much they have worked and how little has gotten done. And they tell themselves, you know that moment? I can't do it. It's too much. 
Isn't it interesting? The text tells us that it is about that halfway point of the building. The wall is about at half point. So they hit the wall, not at the beginning of the race, but kind of in between, in the middle. And this is important for us. When we start a project, when we become wall builders, when we seek to be brave rather than safe, we are going to hit the wall of discouragement because it is hard. And challenges face us, and the greatest challenge is within. All of us have had the experience of hitting the wall on a project, haven't we? How many of us have started a research project? at school or a big project at work and we get off the dime, we have some inspiration and then all of a sudden, several hours in it, like, I can't do this anymore, (gasps) right? You're on page five, you got 50 pages to go, you go, I'm freaking out, right? You know that gut-wrenching moment. I remember uh, writing Work Matters, which has been a journey for me and I remember halfway through this book, you know, they say writing a book is like giving birth to a child. I mean, I, I'm a guy, I haven't given birth to a child, but writing a book is hard, let me tell you. And I started in every morning, every day, in about two weeks into that thing, I'm like, I can't do this anymore, right? Yet I had a contract and I had to do it. That was, that was my saving grace. But I'm saying, whatever it is, think about a home project. Home projects are the worst for me, right? Because I, I can't do anything. And my greatest, seriously, my greatest project ever was a, Garbage disposal I put in. I even wired it. I, it's, a, it's a work of miracle that I could do that. But I, I remember, you know, some, some of you have like redone kitchens and some of you are really good at that, but you know what that's like when you do a major home remodel? All the rubble and dust and junk, right? And you look at this, what have I done? You know, it's, and then you think, oh, and then you start in trying to redo it and you look at it and day after day, oh, I can't do this anymore. The halfway point is the most brutal point. See, courage is not just to start something, not just to move from being safe to brave, not just starting a wall, uh, uh, building a wall of restoration in the world. It is continuing it. That's the deal. Most of us can muddle up the courage to get something going, overcoming initial inertia, right? That's not easy, but, you know, we can be there. But to finish the job, to stay at it when fatigue overwhelms us, When the project size overwhelms us, what do we do? This is where they are. This is exactly where Nehemiah has us as a reader. See, few things can take the wind out of our sails faster than fatigue. Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, said it better than anybody I've ever heard. He says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Exactly right. You can feel the fatigue in this text. They're crying out for help. They're crying out ten times later, it says. We can't do this. We can't do this. We started it. We can't do this. They're still knee-deep in rubble. The wall is only half done, and they're exhausted. And what we need to learn is that wall building is a marathon, not a hundred-yard sprint. I was chatting with a colleague of mine at work this week, and she just she told me about running... Not the trolley run this morning, but it was a a 12-mile race last weekend. And she said to me, I got to the 10-mile mark. I have two more to go. Two more to go. And I I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. And if you're a runner, you know what that's like. That's where we get hitting the wall from. Your body says, I'm done. 
and your mind has to move your body to take one more step. And she said, at the 10-mile mark, I was ready to stop. I could not go any farther. I, but she said, she said, the good grace was I had a running partner. Some of the, this other lady had been running. And her friend came up to her and grabbed her. And she said, you're going to finish the race. Finish the race! And she said, all I could do is put one foot more. And she said, with her help, I finished it. All of us find ourselves there in our faith and what we're called to do. Our work, family, marriage, schoolwork. We hit the wall, don't we? That's when discouragement threatens to derail everything. I hear this often when stay-at-home moms or spouses find themselves in the never-ending pile of laundry for the next thousand weeks. And you stand with laundry everywhere, Cheerios in every part of your van, or having to deal with that difficult person at work and difficult personnel decisions day after day, or a lingering physical illness or a dry spell in your spiritual life, the dark night of the soul. Discouragement will happen to you. You will hit the wall. And it's interesting in Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest person is said to ever live says this. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up their, his fellow. But woe to him who is alone and falls and has not yet another one to lift him up. Living brave demands teamwork. We never live brave alone. Notice chapter 4, verse 14. Nehemiah rallies the troops. And he says... We're not only locking arms together. We need to remember God. God is fighting for us. He's with us. And that's the third truth of this text. What do wall builders need? They need to know hard work awaits them. They need to have a hopeful realism. Not a utopian idea. It's all going to be easy. Wall builders must understand that hard work awaits them. And big challenges are going to confront them. But they have to understand the third truth. And this is where Nehemiah goes. And that is the supernatural resources are available to us. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. How did they get through the wall? They linked arms together, says one more step, one more brick. And they got their eyes off the rubble and on God. That was the key. God is deeply invested in bringing restoration to our lives and our world. We know this because he is the one who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this sin-ravaged planet to restore our lives from sin and death and to restore a broken creation. He died on a cross, shedding his atoning blood for our sin. He rose gloriously from the dead and he rescues you and me from death and brokenness by his grace when we respond in repentance and faith and gives us new life. God is deeply invested. He sent his only son to this broken planet and he wants to restore it and restore your life and mine. The gospel 
compels us to be wall builders and not rubble gazers. The good news of the gospel not only transforms us and our brokenness, it compels us to be about being redemptive agents in our world. So there's another teamwork here that Nehemiah mentions. Yes, horizontal, arm in arm with other people who want to build the wall. But there's a vertical horizontal teamwork we must not miss, a divine human synergy that this text teaches us. And the question as chapter 4 ends is this question. Nehemiah leaves us with us. And that is, will we do our part? Will we build a wall where God has placed us providentially, sovereignly, in our workplaces, our vocations, in the classroom we spend so much time with during the week, in our offices, in our homes? The primary way God restores a broken world is what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in our places of work and contribution. That's how God designed it. Last week, I gave a message, the first message at an EMI at our Leewood campus. And uh, I got this text from a woman who had left the corporate world in the season of her life to raise her two children at home. And this is what she said. She said, thanks for the sermon today. I'm the one who longs to go out and rebuild big walls. She says, sometimes the harder calling is to stay at home for a while and tend my own walls. Wall building may well be at home for a season. And it may be at an office. Two weeks ago, the City Union Mission that is deeply invested in caring for the poor and homeless of our city, that our broader congregation is deeply involved in, hosts an annual luncheon for women, honoring women who have changed the heart of the city. A woman that I admire very much and a friend was honored this year as one of the three women who have changed the city. I think we have a picture of her. Her name is Dr. Grace Ketterman. If you know anything about her life, she has faced some big challenges. She's devoted her life through psychiatry to rebuild broken lives, body, soul, and spirit. And in her 80s, she is so invested in living brave rather than safe. Of not just gazing at rubble, but rebuilding broken lives. And in the interview, she says, we are a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. Grace refuses to be a rubble gazer in her 80s. And every time I'm with her, she just basically says, just hand me another brick, Tom. So will you build a wall where God has placed you? And will you build a wall with us as a broader church family in our city? Oz Guinness, who is a friend of Christ's community and another personal friend, says this in his book, The Call. He says, the call of Jesus is personal, but not purely individual. When Jesus calls us, if you are a follower of Jesus, or if Jesus calls you to himself, he calls you to a local church community. 
He calls you to build the wall of restoration in our city and our world with others who are like-minded and who share the same commitment to the gospel. So my challenge for each one of us, whether we've been a part of Christ's community at another campus and we're now here, or we're newer to Christ's community, or we're visiting for the very first time this morning, will you join us? Will you join us prayerfully? Will you pray with us in your small groups and families and Sunday morning worship? Will you serve inside these walls first to help our student ministry and children's ministry? And There are many places to serve together, but will you serve in partnering outside our walls? In addition to our workplaces and our homes, God has given us gifts and passions and places to partner with others in our city and in our world, to restore brokenness in our world. We have many extension ministry partners around our city that we work with to restore the walls. And I encourage you, especially if you're newer to Christ's community, go to the website. Look at all the opportunities you have to connect with other partners who are rebuilding walls in our city. Maybe take a vision trip. Maybe that's to another country like Rwanda, but maybe it's to another neighborhood you never drive through that is so needy and to see firsthand the rubble of brokenness in our city. Some of you were a part of our Common Good Conference here held at our Brookside campus just a couple weeks ago. So we committed ourselves across our four campuses to be committed to our city. During one of the breakouts, I attended on education. In Southwest High School, right down here, four of our large, uh, large schools were represented, four superintendents. One of the superintendents was Cynthia Lane, who serves Kansas City, Kansas, the urban school district, and she described the challenges her staff face in educating so many children from broken homes, crumbling neighborhoods, and extraordinary poverty, and 65 different languages they speak. Amazing. 89% have free or reduced lunches, and I sat there and I listened to her, this courageous woman seeking to rebuild the walls of brokenness. I could not help of the old song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. How are we to respond? Individually, collectively? Do we just say that's just the way it is or let someone else do it? Or I already have so much in my life I can't handle it? See, it's easy in an information age to not only have cause fatigue but compassion fatigue and just dismiss it with numbing indifference. Winston Churchill said this well. He said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Do you see the brokenness in our city and our world? Do I see it? And are you willing to respond as God leads you? And are you willing to lock arms with others and get to work? It's been a quarter of a century now, and I have some gray hair to show it. Liz and I left Dallas, Texas, drove a 24-foot rider truck and took out half our yard when I left and moved to Kansas City, and moved in a little apartment a little next to just three of us. We had no idea what we're doing. (laughs) We'd never been a pastor before. We were clueless. But we had two things that we knew. One, God was bigger than any obstacle. And secondly, the local churches God designed us the hope of the world. And God wants to raise up churches to be restorers of our brokenness in our world. We wrote our blueprint that has framed Christ Community's first almost quarter of a century. 
And in our blueprint, we wrote these words. We desire Christ's community to be a catalyst for spiritual awakening in our world. There's nothing more our world needs more desperately than spiritual awakening, our land, our city. In fact, the very first message, y'all, I gave in the basement of an office building in 83rd in Corinth was Nehemiah. First series I ever taught as a pastor was Nehemiah. Because Christ's community was birthed to not be a rubble-gazing people, but a wall-building people. So wherever you are this morning, will you make a decision before God and the power of the Holy Spirit to live brave and not safe? Will you join us in not gazing at the rubble, but rebuilding the walls of our community and our city and our world? I don't know about you, but my passion in my heart is simply, hand me another brick. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for each one here this morning. Lord, wherever they are, may they respond to the good news of the gospel. Maybe the brokenness of their life needs the most attention rather than the brokenness of the neighborhood. May the spirit of God reach down and touch them. May they experience the grace of transformation that you offer every one of us, no matter our past. And Lord, some of us need to hear a word from you about where we're to build the wall. Some of us need to say, yes, I'm going to link arms with others, however imperfect they are, and I'm going to rebuild the wall for your glory. Holy Spirit, speak into the deepest crevasses of our hearts. And may we respond. In Jesus' name. I can't think of a better way to respond this morning as we continue to worship to gather around the Holy Communion table. At our Brookside campus, our Holy Communion time is a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross. And in Holy Communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses and we experience it in a fresh way. Now, at Christ's community, we practice open communion. I don't know if you have a religious tradition, you've been in church before, if not. Let me just say a couple words about it. First of all, everyone is welcome to the Holy Communion table who knows Jesus Christ, who's embraced him by faith, repented of their sin, and is a follower of Jesus, everyone. If you're not sure where you are there this morning, please feel free to stay right in your seat and pray during this time. And know how much we're glad you're here. So I'm going to encourage you to respond as the Spirit of God responds to you, wherever you are this morning. There are communion stations around our auditorium. There's a gluten-free one in the back. So take the bread, dip it in the juice, gather in groups of four or five around the communion table. And I think it's helpful as you leave your aisle, when you go to get communion, go out the side of the aisle, of the aisle and then when you come back, go through the middle. It's just easier for us to do that together. Jesus took the bread, he broke it. He blessed it and said, this is my body, take eat. He also took the cup and after supper he said these words, drink from it all of you for the forgiveness of your sins. So I want to encourage you 
that Jesus invites all who are his in his grace and mercy and love and forgiveness to come to the Holy Communion table. So please come as the Lord directs you this morning. And now we're the church scattered to our various vocations and stations in life where God wants us to be restorers of walls um, rather than rubble gazers. So I trust that you've been challenged wherever you are this morning, whether the Spirit of God has spoken to the brokenness in your own heart that you need to take to Jesus uh, and find healing, or the brokenness in our city or our world. Uh, May God's word go with us. I do want to finish with Psalm 90, as John was saying in our teaching team. We have a teaching team that looks at each text, and uh, we were all drawn, I think, powerfully to Psalm 90. So the benediction I want to give you as you leave, and if you uh, are comfortable raising your hand, we often do that. You don't have to, but just as we dismiss you, 
Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Amen and shalom.